Welcome to Mammoth Community Christian Church, and Happy New Year. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to have this chance to start off the new year by gathering in this place to worship our Lord today. And we remember those among us who are sick, and let's remember to be praying for those who are coming down with the virus today and this week. Well, this morning, I'd like to step away from the sermon series I'm preaching about our community life together in the presence of our holy God so that we may together think about a passage of Scripture that I think is especially important for us to meditate upon as we begin a new year, as we think about the days in front of us and and the work of life-shaping that God is doing in our lives and that He'll continue to do this coming week and this coming year as, as we follow Him. And this is Psalm 90, written by Moses. Again, a powerful song that Moses wrote about these moments of looking back at what God has done in our lives up to now and then looking ahead at what God will continue to do. And so I'll read this psalm. You can follow along with me on the screen. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. There are three things in this psalm that we're going to look at this morning. First, God's story is greater than our lives. Second, the part we're given in God's story is small. And third, God alone can grant our small lives eternal significance within his 
greater story. I think that sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that our relationship with God is something that we add to our lives, like a missing ingredient that we mix in with all the other ingredients of school and work and home life. We just, we're going to just sprinkle in some spirituality into our lives. However, Moses begins this psalm by emphasizing that it's not we who add God to our own personal stories like a missing ingredient. Rather, it's God who calls us into his story, his greater story. We might view our lives as our own narrative, right, with ourselves at the center, of our, of our own little story. But we're going to see today that, that God decenters us. God decenters this perspective by revealing that God's story, God's story is the only story at the center of reality. And we're invited to participate in God's greater story. Moses expresses this by reminding us that God has been the shelter. God has been the refuge, the dwelling place for God's people over all the generations. And the reason that every generation of God's people has been able to find refuge in God and hope in God is because God sovereignly rules over all things in human life, over all history. In fact, God sovereignly rules over all things in all eternity. This means that before the earth existed, even before our universe existed, God existed and God sovereignly ruled. I have an app open. NASA created this page where you can uh, follow the trajectory of this new satellite, the, the Webb telescope. And I, like every few days, I'll check how many miles it's traveled and where it is in its deployment. I'm excited about this satellite. But whatever it tells us, we know from Scripture that God sovereignly rules from all eternity through all the expanse of space to the ends of the universe and over every detail in our lives. God is sovereign. And so the story that, that God, the story of God creating and calling and leading and sheltering his people, this story is far older than the lifespans of you or me. This story is far greater than our personal little stories that, that we focus upon and that we're consumed by. And so we must allow God to decenter our little personal stories and to remind us that his story is actually the only story at the center of reality. Something like this decentering happens at the beginning of this book, C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Don Treader, one of the Narnia books, where Lucy and Edmund are visiting their annoying cousin Eustace Scrub. And they're in just a random room in the house and they notice a random picture on a wall of a ship. And it looks 
to be a very Narnian-looking ship, but they just kind of ignore it. And then all of a sudden, they see that the ship seems to be moving, rising and falling on the waves. And this, this story set before TVs existed, so, so we can't quite capture the, the sense of shock that they felt in this moment. And so not only is the, the ship rising and falling, but all of a sudden, the, this wind blows from the painting into the room and, and, and fills the room, and, and all of a sudden, they're surrounded by the smell of the sea. But then, but then the picture starts getting bigger and bigger. And they notice these waves start looking like they're, they're getting nearer and nearer. And then all of a sudden, a huge wave crashes through the painting into their room and soaks them completely. The picture is growing bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that they find themselves balancing on the bottom of the frame, trying not to fall into the ocean. The, the picture has grown so big. Or is, that, or is it that they've grown so small? And then all of a sudden, another wave comes and crashes and pulls them in to the ocean. And they find themselves struggling. They have no idea what's going on until the ship rescues them. And they realize they are back in Narnia. This painting had been located on the outer edge of their lives, on a random wall. They barely noticed it. It's just on the edge of their existence. Now, though, they discover that the world within the painting, this is the center of the story. And their lives are being pulled into and given a role in this much greater story. And in a way, this is exactly what Moses is doing by decentering our lives in this psalm. He's reminding us that God's story is the central story, that God's story is far bigger and greater and, and massive in scope than any of our personal stories. And we sometimes think we can move God's story to the edge of our lives. It's just, it's there in a corner. It's this ingredient we're sprinkling in with the other ingredients of our lives. God's story, though, disrupts our story. God's, God's story pushes our stories aside because God's story is the central story, the one story that matters most of all. In the light of God's greater story, we can then see the actual smallness of our own lives. Our lives on earth are so short, and the part we're given in God's story is so small, at least from one perspective. But as we accept the smallness of our lives, as, as we allow our lives to be placed within God's greater story, God then gives our lives eternal significance. Mo Moses first communicates the smallness of our lives by, by contrasting God's view of time and our own experience of time. He writes this, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. 
Because God is eternal, a thousand years, a thousand years are barely anything for him. They're like a day that just quickly passes or a watch in the night. That was a three-hour period of time. For God, a thousand years just goes by in the blink of an eye. For us, though, a thousand years is an unimaginably huge amount of time that none of us will live on this earth long enough to see. Now, understanding how God views a thousand years and how we experience a thousand years highlights how fragile, how brief our lives actually are. Moses goes on in verse 5. He says, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning, it springs up new, but by evening, it is dry. It's withered. Moses is teaching us that the wisdom that sees our lives accurately, that views our lives as our lives actually are, will recognize that our lives are fleeting. Our lives are fragile. And if we're honest today, we need no reminder that life is fleeting and fragile At this point in our pandemic, something like 5.5 million people have died of COVID throughout the world. Most of us personally know somebody who's died. And even if we feel that we're young and we're vaccinated and that the odds of us dying of COVID are small, the pandemic has forced us to recognize the fact that death is real. There's an ancient saying in Latin, memento mori, remember that you must die. The second century Christian theologian Tertullian describes the triumphal processions of victorious Roman generals as they would return after conquering other parts of the world. They'd return to Rome and the citizens of Rome would gather on the sides of the boulevard and they would cheer in deafening ways as as the general in his procession would march in victory down the streets of the capital city. This was the height of human glory. But Tertullian tells us that in the chariot behind the general, there would stand a slave who would hold a gold crown over the general's head. And as the the crowds on the side of the road would erupt in cheer and applause, the slave would whisper just loud enough for the general to hear, look behind you. Remember, you are a man. In other words, the slave told the general, worldly glory is in front of your eyes right now. But turn around because the hour of your death is approaching closer and closer. Even though you're now receiving glory and applause, In this moment, great general, remember that your story is not the central story. You will someday be set aside. You will someday be decentered. 
You will someday die. Remember that you must die. Today, Moses reminds us that each of us will someday die. Because we're like grass that springs up quickly in the morning. But by evening, it's dry and withered and lifeless. I believe that an implication of this teaching is that we should feel real urgency inside of us to live each day in a right relationship with God. There's an urgency to God's work of conviction by which he uncovers the sin in our lives, the ways we've rejected him, the ways we've turned our back on him. And there's an urgency to God's call to repent. To repent means to turn. We turn away from our self-centered little stories which are passing away and we turn into God's greater story. Moses writes, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Here Moses describes the process by which God uncovers our sin. God uncovers our rebellion against him and Moses mentions God's anger. Yes, God is love, 1 John 4. And yes, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love, Psalm 145. But when we reject God's mercy and the provision he's made for us in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of our sin, to have new life and a new start in him, we do face God's anger. Imagine for a moment that you're a good friend to someone in your life. You faithfully look out for their best interests. You loyally uh, defend them. You defend their character in front of others uh, behind their back. And then one day you discover that this friend has been saying harsh and untrue things about you behind your back, spreading false rumors in your social circle. How would you feel in that moment? You'd feel deeply hurt by what they've done, and you'd feel anger toward them because they're repaying your loyalty, your faithfulness, with disloyalty. This is one way we may understand God's anger described in Scripture. When we reject God, when we turn away from Him, we're rejecting the faithfulness and loyalty and kindness and mercy He extends to us. Ephesians 4.30 describes the Holy Spirit being grieved, deeply grieved by our sin. Grieved by the ways that we reject God and turn away from Him. God responds to our sin and our rejection with deep sorrow. Why? Because he loves us. And he also feels genuine anger towards us as we also feel toward those we love when they hurt us. 
the reality of God's deep grief and anger when we sin reveals the reality of God's authentic love for us. By reminding us of the shortness of our lives and of God's anger toward us when we reject him and turn away from him, Moses is reminding us of the true urgency of our situation. He's calling us to quickly turn back to God while we still have time because whether we know it or not, time is short and our life is quickly fleeting away, quickly slipping away. In 2013, the Harvard Business Review published an article with this title, You Make Better Decisions If You See Your Senior Self. Hal Hirschfield and other researchers conducted an experiment in which individuals were shown a picture of themselves that had been computer-enhanced to show how that person would age over coming decades. So basically, if you were part of this study, they'd show you a picture of yourself decades from now, how you look when you grow old. After being shown a picture of what they'll look like decades from now, individuals then answered questions in a survey in such a way that revealed that they are now more likely to do things like save money for retirement than they otherwise had been. Other experiments like this have led to similar outcomes. In fact, other researchers have found that if we're shown tangible evidence that we will someday grow old, then we're more likely to act ethically now and do things like refuse to, to cheat on a test. What these experiments reveal is something that Moses already told us about hundreds of years ago. He prays in this psalm, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What does it mean to number our days? Well, the fact that we need to ask God to teach us to do this indicates that this activity of numbering our days does not come naturally to any of us. Numbering our days is this practice of knowing that we will someday die. It means having a truthful understanding of just how short our lives actually are and how quickly the time is flying by. This realization, though, is something that most of us would rather avoid. You know, the reason why researchers designed the experiment that I mentioned a moment ago is because psychologists have realized that most people feel disconnected from their future selves. In other words, yes, we may imagine the future, we may set goals for ourselves in the future, but most of us cannot imagine what we'll be like as an old person. That's what they found. 
John Calvin himself even argued back in the 1600s that the average person embraces an illusion that they'll live many, many, many more years. And then they imagine that the years that are in front of them will feel like an almost endless amount of time. In other words, most of us live in the illusion that death is something that happens to other people. And that, that our own death is something that won't actually happen to us until a point in the very, very distant future that we can't even imagine right now. But this is an illusion that distracts us from the actual brevity, the actual shortness of our lives. When we number our days, though, we reject this illusion. Numbering our days means that we allow God to give to us an accurate view of our short time here on earth. Moses then tells us that numbering our days, having this accurate view about the brevity, the shortness of our lives, will enable us to gain a heart of wisdom. This is the wisdom that researchers were trying to teach people by showing them a picture of themselves as an old person. This is the wisdom that chooses to live our lives now according to what truly matters from an eternal perspective. We saw the first part of wise living earlier in this psalm. Living with wisdom means we feel the urgency of our need to turn away from our self-centered stories and to turn into God's greater story. We turn away from our sin. We, we leave the ways that we've been rejecting God. We turn to Him. We, we live now in God's presence with Him each day. We now find the last two pieces of wise living at the end of this psalm. Moses says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. To live with wisdom means that we live in joy and the way in which we may live in joy is by allowing God to satisfy us in the morning with his unfailing love. God's love alone can satisfy our longing for meaning and significance that endures after our earthly lives have ended. Experiencing God, experiencing his love, and then sharing his love with others becomes the total meaning, the full significance of our lives. God's love alone can satisfy us in such a way that we can then accept the brevity, the shortness of our lives. Because when we encounter God's love, when we experience His love and His love fills us, we then know in that moment that we're eternally safe in God's love. And that we have nothing, absolutely nothing to fear, not even death. This is why Paul writes in Romans 8, 
For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Enter into God's love through Jesus Christ and you'll have nothing to fear, not even death. Yes, life is short, but each day now becomes by grace a gift in which we may live with joy in God's presence, in God's love knowing that we'll continue to experience God's love, not only during our days here on earth, but also forever into eternity. In God's love, you and I are safe. Notice that Moses writes, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. He mentions the morning twice earlier in this psalm in a way that indicates that he's referring to the early part of our lives. He says, they are like new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. Moses seems to be asking God to satisfy us in the morning, in the early part of our lives, with his love. I think that there are two ways to understand this. First, undoubtedly, this is a prayer That God will enable his people to find the joy and the contentment of his love while we are young. If we discover the joy and the contentment and fulfillment that only God's love provides while we're young, in the morning of our lives, then we'll be far more likely to live in God's wisdom and reject all those other false paths that promise false joys. We'll avoid the heartache of spending years of our lives chasing empty pursuits, following hollow dreams. There's also a second sense to this prayer, though, that we might be satisfied with God's love in the morning. Because no matter how old we may be today, there's a way in which this moment Right now is the morning that we've been given. After about the age of 24, 25, whatever measure of vigor and vitality that we feel today will decrease over time. From the perspective of the future, this moment today will feel like a morning of freshness and strength compared to the physical decline that we someday will experience. And so Moses prays that in the morning, today, right now, you and I would be satisfied with God's love, that we'd allow God's love to fill us. Today, let today be the morning that you enter into the love of God. Finally, all that we've been learning up to this point provides the wisdom that we need to live a life of lasting significance. Because each one of us wants to live a life that matters. 
Each one of us wants to make a positive difference in this world. Each of us wants to leave a legacy behind us that will endure. Moses speaks of this. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now here we come full circle. At the beginning of the psalm, Moses, remember, he decenters our lives by showing us that our own personal stories are not the main story. But rather, we're invited into the main story, God's eternal story, which began long before we came on the scene. It will continue long after we've died. And so Moses forces us to acknowledge our own smallness and the smallness of these individual stories of ours in the light of God's greatness and God's glory. And then here at the end, we see that God gives back to us with his right hand what he had taken from us with his left hand. Because when we turn away from our sin, when we turn to God, when we join God's eternal story, we discover that God gives us a part in his eternal story. Though small from one perspective, this part that he gives us in his story becomes by grace significant and he even uses us in this small part in his large story to make an eternal contribution to his kingdom to his greater story we accept our smallness we accept our dependence upon God's love and in exchange we're given a share we're given a participation in God's great eternal story. We allow God to humble us by showing us our actual smallness. We then give him our smallness and he invites us to participate in his greatness. In many ways, Moses' own life illustrates this point perfectly. He grew up in the household of Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt, he was surrounded by the wealth and prestige of one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time. We read in Acts 7 that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Such an upbringing would have planted huge ambitions in anybody's heart. We read that as a young man, Moses indeed had huge ambitions. He wanted to free his own people, the Israelites, from their slavery in Egypt. And so one day when he sees an Egyptian slave master beating a Jewish slave, Moses kills the Egyptian. And he probably thought this is his moment to shine. This is the moment when his own personal story of ambition will become the central story of his nation. We read in Acts, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Now, we don't know all that was happening inside Moses' heart and mind in this moment, but I don't think it's too unlikely 
to speculate that he may have viewed himself as the hero of the hour. He may have seen himself as the hero of his own story. But God needed to decenter him by showing him that it's not Moses' own personal story that's at the center. And it's not Moses who's the hero. Rather, God's eternal story, that's the central story. And the only one who ever rescues anybody, the only deliverer is God. And so Moses needed to spend 40 years taking care of sheep, leading sheep, before he'd be ready for a more visible role in God's eternal story. And when Moses was ready to humble himself and accept his smallness and God's greatness, then and only then did God make Moses' little role one of the most influential and world-shaping callings that history has ever seen. This is the irony We recognize our insignificance in the light of God's greater story. We enter into God's story and then, only then, we find eternal significance that we're not going to find any other way. The reason for this is that God shares his significance with us. God shares his work of the kingdom of heaven with us that is shaping souls for eternity. And he shares this with those who are willing to humble themselves, who are willing to see their complete insignificance apart from him, and who are willing to look to him alone for his love that alone satisfies our longing for significance. Orson Scott Card wrote the novel Ender's Game about a young man chosen to undergo rigorous military training in the hope that he and others would be able to save humanity from an alien invasion. The leadership lessons found in this book are so valuable that the book has several times appeared on military college reading lists to provide examples of leadership. Some of you may have read the sequel to this book, which is entitled Speaker for the Dead. In this novel, Orson Scott Card utilizes the characters that he introduced in Ender's Game to reflect on the precious and precarious nature of human life. And he introduces in this book an idea that I especially like, which is the role of the speaker for the dead. At the end of someone's life, the speaker researches the person who died, who they were, what they did, the legacy that they left behind. And then the speaker recounts the person's life from a first-person perspective, speaking for the one who has died. In other words, the speaker is literally speaking for that person. And talks not only about the events of their life, but as best as the the speaker is able to determine, the speaker also explains the motives and the reasons behind their actions. The speaker expresses 
the deceased person's life in a way that this person can be understood, remembered, loved. The speaker puts that person's legacy into words. What legacy will you someday leave behind? As people someday look back over your life, will they see that you spent your life trying to build your own tiny story that will quickly disappear soon after you're gone? Or will they see that you devoted your life to the greater story, to God's eternal story, the only story that gives to all who enter it lasting significance? At the start of this new year, let's together move more deeply into God's story. Let's acknowledge the brevity, the shortness, the fragility of our lives. Let's feel the urgent need for our repentance and let's turn away from our self-centered ambitions. Let's turn to God through Jesus Christ and experience his love which continually calls us to enter into the joy, the joy of God's greater story where he has a role of eternal significance for each one of us. Let's pray. Father, we close this time much as we began by thanking you for being our loving Father who sees our lives as they actually are as this brief time on earth. And forgive us, Lord, for first of all, not acknowledging that fact and then secondly, trying to live our lives as though we're building our own personal story rather than as those who are entering into your eternal story. Oh God, I pray for those who, who you're calling today to enter into your story. Move in their hearts and minds. Give each one of us the gift of faith that we need to say yes to you, to enter into your story, to be transformed, to be satisfied by your love, to find eternal significance in your significance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.